Good morning, everyone. It really is a great honor for me to be with you. I bring you greetings, not just coming alone, but you don't know a man unless you know his family. So let me, in just a few seconds, if I could, introduce you to my family. I have a dear wife, Dawn. She's a wife second to none. Sorry about that, you other men out there. But she's just a great friend and, and beloved who is dealing with a lot of issues right now, frankly. I got an email this morning that Uh, Some tragedies that have happened over in the Thailand area I can't expound on, but by God's grace, no matter what we face each day, he is enough, isn't he? And then there's my four children, have two of them, Marie, who's 24, studying uh, in counseling down at Columbia International University, desires to give her heart to the children at risk of the world. She's the only uh, person I've ever met who actually went to Calcutta, worked in the slums, and said, Daddy, I loved it. Don't know if you've ever been to Calcutta, into the slums, but not many of us would say we loved it. Only God could do that in a young lady's heart, and that's what he's doing, stirring her for the future and what she wants to give her heart to. Then there's David, my second, a tremendous athlete, great, great young man who loves God passionately also, who's studying his word also down at Columbia. He also wants to go overseas. His brother Luke, who's uh, turning into a senior as of, I guess it was last night when the senior class graduated. So, uh, he, wow, one more that has to leave the nest next year, and that's always a painful time. Then little Christy, our 12-year-old, who is the apple of her father's eye, and yes, she gets whatever she wants. Uh, She's a great blessing to us. So that's my family, and I just wanted you to to know them, even as we get into the Word this morning. If you have your Bibles, please turn to 2 Chronicles chapter 20. This is an amazing passage of Scripture. As we look at the fact that the nations are to say that the Lord reigns. This particular passage says it about as clearly as any that I've seen. I'm not going to take the time to read the entire passage, but I would like to read some selected verses for you from Second Chronicles chapter 20. After this, the Moabites and Ammonites with some of the Maonites came to make war on Jehoshaphat. Some men came and told Jehoshaphat, A vast army is coming against you from Edom from the other side of the sea. It is already in Hazazon Tamar that is in Gedi. Alarmed, Jehoshaphat resolved to inquire of the Lord, and he proclaimed a fast for all Judah. The people of Judah came together to seek help from the Lord. Indeed, they came from every town in Judah to seek him. Then Jehoshaphat stood up in the assembly of Judah in Jerusalem at the temple of the Lord in front of the new courtyard, and this is what he prayed. O Lord, God of our fathers, are you not the God who is in heaven? You rule over all the kingdoms of the nations. Power and might are in your hand, and no one, absolutely no one, brothers and sisters, can withstand him, the living God. Oh, our God, he continued to pray, did you not drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people of Israel and give it forever to the descendants of Abraham, your friend? And then for time's sake, look down at verse 12 as he's continuing this prayer. He says, Oh, our God, will you not judge them, these Moabites, Ammonites, and Maonites? For we have, and I love this, this is one of my favorite prayers in all of Scripture, because I've been praying it nonstop for about 25 years. We have no power to face this vast army that is attacking us. We do not know what to do. Do you ever feel like that? But our eyes are upon you. And then in verse 17 is, of course, that famous passage where, where uh, uh, a prophet was sent to them to give a special message. And that was where he says, you will not have to fight this battle. 
Take up your positions. Stand firm and see the deliverance the Lord will give you, O Judah and Jerusalem. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. Go out to face them tomorrow, and the Lord, he will be with you. So they called together a special choral number. I think it was all male voices, if I'm not mistaken. They went out and sang their song, and the enemy fled. I know what you're thinking. I've heard choirs like that. But that's not what it was about. No, it was something that was taking place in the unseen realm, in the spiritual realm. Before we get into this passage together, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, once again, we turn to you because, quite frankly, it doesn't matter what any of my opinions are, and we don't want to hear from John Fain this morning. We yearn that you would speak to us, you who are sitting on your throne this morning, ruling and reigning over all of eternity and over all of this earth. And we cry out to you, we look to you, and we yearn, O oh God, that you would meet us this morning. Come and look into our deepest heart. May this not be just one more service that we go through, but we cry out to you that your presence and your glory would rest on this place, that you would draw close to us, that you would bring comfort and encouragement, that you would challenge us where we need to be challenged, and that our eyes would be fixed on the Lord Jesus Christ and him alone. Father, have your way in our midst. We're not here to control anything. We ask that you would be God today, even as you were in Jehoshaphat's day. And we pray that anything that is not of you that comes from these lips, that as the Berean believers in the book of Acts were able to discern what was true from what was not true, so may we do the same. Anything that does not originate from you, we ask that we would reject it and get rid of it. But Father, if there's anything here that you have for us this morning, one sentence, one word, one syllable, one look, oh God, we know that you can, you can work more powerfully through one word than we can through a million. And so we pray that you would have your way in this place this morning. In your precious name we pray. Amen. These Moabites, Ammonites, and Maonites who were coming against Jehoshaphat were really bad dudes. I mean, like the Vikings of old, they used to come in and they would cross the Jordan River. They would, they would tear down the homes. They would tear up the crops. They would plunder and pillage. They would rape the women. They were, they were just a royal pain in the neck to Israel. And over, over literally 50 years or longer, Edersheim has said prior to this time that Jehoshaphat entered into a new way of approaching this enemy, that they were, the, the Moabites, Ammonites, and Maonites were so powerful that many of the kings prior to Jehoshaphat would go into the hill country, into the caves outside of Jerusalem, and they would, they would look out on these roving hordes that were coming, and they would literally quiver and quake in fear because these were an enemy to be reckoned with. But notice the orientation of Jehoshaphat. He took an entirely different approach than those around him and those prior to him. He, he realized that the battle that he was fighting was not a battle that was to be fought at the physical level. It was a battle that was taking place in the unseen realm, if you will, which is why he would begin his prayer with, O oh Lord, God of our fathers, are you not the God who is in heaven? You rule over all the kingdoms of the nations. Power and might are in your hand. And no one, absolutely no one, can withstand you. Oh, Lord God of our fathers, are you not the God who is in heaven? My brothers and sisters, how do you view the living God this morning? Do you see him accurately for who he really is? 
around the world where I go and interface with people, I'm always astonished at the way we try and remake God into our image and fit him into our categories so that we can somehow control the way he may work within our lives or within the lives of our family or with others. But God will have none of it. You see, this is the God of history, the God who is working all of his purposes in history for the sake of his great name. Paul would put it this way in Ephesians chapter 1, I believe it's verse 3, where he says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us where? In the heavenly realms, with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Then he goes on to say this, For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. And then he says down in verse 9, And he made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ, to be put into effect when the times will have reached their fulfillment, to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. Notice the progression here from before the creation of the world until such time as some from every tribe and language and tongue and people will bow beneath the feet of Jesus Christ. In that great span of time, the whole scope of human history, he alone is God. And he's fulfilling his purposes for the sake of of his name. That's where we begin, is a right and a biblical understanding of who this God really is. But we can't really understand him until we see him as the God of the heavenly realm. You see, when he says, oh Lord, God of our fathers, are you not the God who is in heaven? That was a rhetorical question. He knew absolutely that this is the God of the heavenly realm. That idea of the God of the heavenly realm resonates throughout the Old Testament in various places. It comes to light, for instance, in Psalm chapter 115, verse 3, if I'm not mistaken, where it it says that he alone is God. He is the God in heaven. And, And will he not have his way is what the psalmist asks. And then as you go to uh, uh, the story of Rahab, back in, in, when she was in Jericho, the prostitute who hid the spies. It's fascinating when she's interacting with those spies in Joshua chapter 2, verse 11, I believe it is, where she, where she says to them that there, our hearts melted within us, our courage fled from us as we looked out and we realized that that which was being accomplished, and by the way, when they looked out, they saw with their eyes what was being accomplished. You see, when Israel crossed that, that Jordan River and came from the other side across into the promised land, according to some of the archaeological digs in that area, the river actually backed up as far as 20 miles. I mean, that was a miracle that could be seen from the walls of Jericho. And as they saw that, you know what this woman's response was? And the reason that she became actually one of those who was in that long line that, that actually were, were uh, in the line of Jesus himself, the lineage of Jesus, because as she, as she looked out at that, she said, he is the God of heaven and of earth. The heavenly realm resonated throughout the Old Testament. Nehemiah, for instance, when, when uh, his brother and two of his friends came to him and said the walls have been torn down in Israel, he, he had a very emotive response to that. He burst into tears and he cried out to who? The God who is in heaven. You see, he's not just the God of all of history, but he is the God of a heavenly realm that is more real than the realm in which we find ourselves now. You see, this earth is passing. It will someday be consumed, but this heavenly realm will never be put away. It is the realm where God rules and reigns, and it is a powerful reality. And if we will see it for what it really is, 
God can transform our hearts and we can face anything, whether it's an economic crisis, whether it is, whether it is, it is the terrorism of, of Islamic uh, movements in different parts of the world, whether it is, it is the, the impossibility of, of seeing uh, uh, somehow us argue a Buddhist into the kingdom, whether it, is, whether it is moving in urban areas where we can hardly figure out which direction we are to go, no matter what it is, if we will see God accurately as a God of the heavenly realms, we can involve ourselves in that which he is accomplishing around the world. Now, perhaps you doubt me on that. Well, let me tell you a story. I had the privilege of being with some of those in what they call the the, uh, Back to Jerusalem movement. Now, that idea, the concept of the Back to Jerusalem movement has actually been hijacked in the West in many places. There's a lot of stuff out there that just isn't accurate concerning what's going on in China and the way those who are getting raised up to go. And a lot of exaggeration has taken place. Let me assure you, we don't need to exaggerate the Back to Jerusalem movement. It is a powerful work of God if you remain absolutely accurate with it. And a few years ago, I had the privilege of, of a, a training and speaking with some of those who were from that movement. I'll never forget that time. The reason was there were 25 along, excuse me, 26, I believe it was. It had to be an even number. Because as the leaders of, of some of those house churches in China knew that there were, there were about 13 men and 13 women who wanted to go and serve Christ as missionaries, you know what they told them? You better pair up and get married because you can't stand it on your own. <laughs> and so they did. So 13 married 13. And they seemed to be pretty happy about it, frankly, even though their church elders had told them what to do. And as they were along the back row there, it was really fun because as you would train, you know, you, you're teaching on there and, and you, they would hear a joke. I'd tell a joke, you know, and about three minutes later, they'd be laughing on the back row and all. But uh, there were also a number of English speakers there. But what amazed me was one particular man who was in that conference. There were some very impressive people there. One leader there that, that week had actually was a leader of 12 million people within China. He was impressive enough on his own. There was another man who really caught my attention as I heard his story. This man had been imprisoned for 18 long years there in East Asia. But what was amazing about his imprisonment was that they had tried everything they could to break this man. And they couldn't. He just wouldn't stop talking about Jesus. No matter what they did to him, he had seen the God of the heavenly realm. And he knew that that God existed. And he knew that this Jesus had saved him, and he just wanted others to know about it. It wasn't that he was being obnoxious about it. He wasn't going around trying to force everybody into the kingdom. He was just talking about Jesus. And so they they tried everything, and finally they had enough. About nine years, halfway through his prison sentence, they said, okay, since you won't be quiet about this thing, this is what we're going to do. As you know, some of the, perhaps you don't know, but many of the buildings in that part of the world don't have the same kind of sewage systems that we have. Oftentimes, they are just open pipes that will come out underneath the building. And oftentimes, they have to get in and somehow dig the channels out in order to keep the sewage moving so it will move out, you know, out into the open land. I don't mean to be impolite this morning, but that's what he had to live with. So what did they say? They said, okay, uh, Mr. Paul, since you won't be quiet about this Jesus, we're going to let you dig out the raw sewage uh, for quite some time. So they would send him underneath the building where this raw sewage was coming out, and he would have to walk into waist-deep raw sewage, all because he loved Jesus. And he would dig out that channel for hours. They say it was as long as 9, 12, sometimes 15 hours a day, Paul had to go under there and dig out the raw sewage. You know what amazed me about him? They said he absolutely loved it. You see, when he went into the raw sewage underneath the building, nobody cared what he said. (laughs) 
He could openly pray to the living Christ all day long. He could sing songs of praise hour after hour. They said that he would come as he approached those prison walls, as they were going underneath the prison, actually, he would sing this song, I come to the garden alone while the dew is still on the roses. And the voice I hear calling ever near is, was the voice of the living Christ, the Christ of the heavenly realm. Nine years, 12 to 15 hours a day, he dug out raw sewage. It was one of the greatest honors of my life to meet Paul, to shake his hand. I cried. I couldn't believe a man that loved Jesus that much. A man who maintained perspective because he saw a heavenly realm. A realm much more real than the realm in which we find ourselves now. I don't have to go far from home to know of those who care about the heavenly realm. I'll talk in a few minutes about myself just a little bit if I could in order to personalize this thing. But I had a mom who knew me very well. I would, so I was telling the congregation last night, I'm the youngest of five kids, four older sisters. Uh, had any of my sisters been a boy, I wouldn't exist. <laughs> but by God's grace, <laughs> an infinite grace, he didn't allow them to have a son for a long time. But when he finally allowed me to be born, uh, mom and I became very close. My dad traveled a lot. He was a traveling evangelist and uh, a pastor as well, beloved man of God, just went to be with the Lord last year. But because mom and I traveled, and, or excuse me, because dad traveled so much, and because mom and I were alone so much, as my sisters went off and got married, we were often home alone. I used to call my mom every day from high school and just see how she was doing. I didn't realize that was unusual at all. <laughs> Figured everybody called their mom to chat. But anyway, uh, she seemed to be pretty happy about that. And then one day I got the word that uh, mom's cancer had come back and she was dying. You ever had those kind of moments? How do you maintain perspective on those kind of days? I remember it was the first church I'd ever spoken in, actually, as we were getting ready to head to Indonesia. And that church had decided to pick up our support. As I got news of that, I prayed. It was interesting that church decided to take up an offering right to the penny. It was exactly what we needed for me to be able to get down to Miami to be with mom and dad. You ever had those kind of moments? Get on a plane and head down there, and on the outside it was rainy, just like I felt on the inside. And I kept praying this, Lord, please just let me hug one of my sisters. My sisters and I are very close, as well as mom and I were. And I said, I just need to hug one of them, Linda, Susie, Judy, Jane. I don't care which one or which two, just let me have at it because <laughs> I need that. Dad met me at the airport, threw his arms around me. I'll never forget that day as we wept together. And he said, son, mom really wants to talk to you. And I said, that's fine, dad, but you mind if we drop by Susie's house? I just love to, you know, kind of reorient a little bit. And he said, no, no, mom wants to talk to you fast. So we headed to the hospital that morning, uh, went up to the 10th floor that there in South Miami. And I remember as I came into her room, she was in real pain. And she didn't hesitate to launch into what she had to say. She said, you know, John Boy, as you know, I've never led many people to Christ. But your father has. But she says, I know God has uh, his hand on you. And I know he's called you to go to the Sundanese people. That was hard for her, actually, because she had wrestled. I'd before 
choosing to go to seminary. It's a long story, but I was planning on being a lawyer. You know, I figured if I could argue and get paid for it, wow. And uh, with four older sisters, I was pretty good at it. Uh, but, she, but she had seen a heavenly realm, a realm that is more real than the realm in which we find ourselves, a realm that is all that really matters because all that really matters is of eternal value. And my mom, who saw Christ in the heavenly realm, even though she knew all the weaknesses of her son, said to me that day, John boy, you go to the West Java and you give them the gospel because God wants them to know him. And when I die, I don't, I've already told your dad, I don't want any flowers or any of that stuff sent in here. I want them to give money to your ministry. Go get them, John boy, for the sake of his name. Have you seen the heavenly realm? Parents here this morning, are you ready to surrender your children to go wherever he may ask them to go, to go into the most dangerous areas of the world, whatever he may call us to do? Can you see the God of the heavenly realm, the the realm that is more real than what we have here, the realm in which we will someday die and go to and be a part of for all of eternity? Full surrender, all that we have, everything is at that realm before his feet, that king, not just to praise and worship with our lips, but to do so with our choices and with our lives. But I don't know about you, but even though that is true and that exists, I feel so incredibly inadequate to ever face the Moabites, Ammonites, and Mayonites of our generation. Oh, yeah, I could throw out all kinds of t- statistics. I could talk about the 100 million street kids around the world, the, 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 the uh, 10 million kids that are caught up in, in sexual trafficking and slavery. We could talk about the, the million prostitutes of Thailand, the country that I live in, and the fact that 85% of them are under age 16. I mean, we can, we're, we're talking about challenges that would boggle any of our minds. How in the world can we see the gospel brought into places like this for his glory? But even as Jehoshaphat, down in verse 12, when he says, Will you not judge them? We have no power to face this vast army that is coming against us. We don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. No, we don't know what to do. We have no idea. I'm going to make this real fast because I'm running out of time quickly. But brothers and sisters, you're looking at a man who really has nothing in terms of what the world has to offer for, being, for impressing anyone or for ever accomplishing anything or for ever being, quote, successful in the eyes of this earth. And I don't mind telling you that because I think our generation needs to hear that God's not interested in what we bring to the table. He's interested in simply surrendering ourselves before him because he's the one who will live his life out through us anyway. That's what Paul said in Galatians 2.20. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives within me. And that I, the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And as a young man, I was so insecure, so, uh, you know, fearful of things. Uh, and, uh, man, you tell people that now and they laugh. And they think, you are out of your mind. There was, you were fearful of things? Yes. I remember comparing myself with others. Perhaps, you, have you ever been there? Have you ever felt the, the pangs of jealousy? Oh boy, I could, I, I, could, I could put my insecurities against anybody's insecurities in this room this morning. God's not interested in that. When I was in high school, I went out for wrestling. We didn't wrestle in Western North Carolina. We wrestled. Didn't do so well at it, so I wasn't athletic. So, well, you got to look good. Well, you know, with a nose like this and a few other things, eh, that doesn't go very far either. So, well, well academics then, well, if you can't make it in sports, then you've got to make it in academics, right? Isn't that what the American dream is all about? It's being the be all you can be, you know? I can't sing on American Idol or anything, so I might as well go after the academics. 
until I make a D minus in French and weep for joy because I actually passed and then take the SATs and score not lowest in my high school class, but second lowest. The guy who scored lowest had mental problems. I mean, he was, he had a reason. So I take it a second time and I scored 30 points lower than the first time. I remember I told my niece one time what I scored on that test and she said, Uncle John, you must have only taken half the test. And I said, nope, it was the whole thing. I remember the test said, you won't even make above a C in college. And I sat with my mom that day, and I said, Mom, I'm not going to college. I'm tired of feeling stupid and acting stupid and looking stupid and getting me out of there. And then I just, I had ADD, and I couldn't stand sitting in a classroom. And it's like, you know, if I could be set free from my prison, (laughs) then I would praise the name of God. But just get me out of the classroom, you know. And she said, John, boy, we prayed for you 20 years before you were ever born. God has a plan for your life, and if you'll just trust him, If we'll just trust him. By the way, before my dad died, he got up on one elbow in that hospital room. He had one last sermon to give. And he said, listen to me. Listen to me. He will take care of you. You can trust him. We can trust the God of the heavenly realm. Jehoshaphat understood that. That's why he said, we don't know what to do. But our eyes are on you because we can trust you. So I went to college and all that stuff. It doesn't matter what happened to me after that. I just want you to know that he can take any of us and use us for his glory because he wants to accomplish the impossible. He's not interested in, in simply uh, doing a few nice things through us. He has prepared fruit for us to bear from before the creation of the world, each and every one of us, no matter what the gifting is that he's given you. You know, some people have 10 gifts, some have five, and some, like me, may only have one, or I think, frankly, I only have a half or a quarter. It's okay, because it's not even the gifting that we bring to the table. It's what God brings to all of that. He is the God of the heavenly realm. He is the God of history. He wants to use you. You think, well, how can I get involved in missions even, you know, from this point on, John? Well, let me assure you that if you can be involved in intercession and rocking the gates of hell by coming before God and trusting him in prayer to change the course of history for men and of nations, your contribution to all that we're talking about this morning can be greater than even the missionaries on the field. I am convinced that he alone is God and he moves in answer to our prayers and we need to believe in our generation that prevailing prayer really does make a difference. Certainly changed the way I lead now, changed the way I do things. I don't mind at all telling you. And if you think I'm a lazy bum, that's your problem, not mine. But I take hours a day now to go up a prayer mountain near my house and I climb that mountain and I come back down and I plead with God and we've seen God move in ways that we never could have before. Because he's wanting to be God. He wants to receive the glory. He's not interested in our degrees and our strategies and all the things that we bring to the table. He wants, as he did in Jehoshaphat's day, for us to stand still and see that he is God. He wants to do the impossible for his glory. Sorry, i got to move fast. I always mess it up. There was a young man who understood these things. One of eight children. And their parents didn't have hardly anything. You know, we talk about economic hard times. Could it be that maybe God's allowed this so that revival will come to our nation? I pray so. That if he's put you in economic straits, please turn to Jesus. Don't go to all the financial gurus. That family, that they, they had nothing, but they said, we want our kids to learn the word of God. So they... 
even though they were sharecroppers, they put together a little bit of money every year and, 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 and saved it up so that when their first child of eight could cross the border from Minnesota into Canada to go to Prairie Bible Institute, they were able to help them. And they helped all eight children study the Word of God. The second son had heard some of the things that we've been talking about this morning, a God of the heavenly realm, a God of the nations, a God who wants to move in power. And he started to pray, and he called his friends to prayer, and he, he called his family to prayer. With a family that sizable, it's good to call them to prayer. And as they prayed, God started moving in ways that we could never articulate or understand at the human level because he is the God of the heavenly realm. And on the other side of the world, there was an elder in a tribe who had a dream in his sleep. And in that dream, he saw a white man coming, and that white man brought leaves with a message written on it from the Creator God. And those leaves that he saw were, because they came from the Creator God, were going to change his valley and his people. And he woke up and he called his two sons to himself. And he said, this is the dream. This is the element of it. Be ready. When that man comes, you help him learn our language because those leaves from heaven will change our people. He then died in the intervening years. It took about three years before the first missionary, or maybe it was only two years before the first missionary came into the valley. That missionary came, but he ran into one of the most difficult verbal systems in the world. He writes back after about a year of trying to crack this language, which was so hard. He said, please send somebody. And God in his sovereignty sent the second son, that family of eight. That man showed up with his new wife. And he, as he came walking into the valley, they saw him. And one of these young men said, that's the fulfillment of the dream. He went running and got one of these sons and he brought him back. Two days walk. And so they came back about four days after this, after this Caucasian fellow had arrived. And they started talking to him in their language. Obviously, I don't know it. As they did so, he wondered, what is this all about? He was a little nervous. These were cannibals at the time, and he didn't want to end up in a stew pot or something. And so he was cautiously examining all this. And yet they picked up a stone axe, and he thought, oh boy, here we go. But as they picked up that stone axe, it wasn't in an aggressive way. They just began to chop and started using that word to chop. And then they looked at the sky and said, this is what it would be in the past tense to chop yesterday. And, and as he saw that, he, he all of a sudden caught on. This, oh, they're trying to teach me the language. And, and he had been unusually gifted by God in linguistics, something that a gift that I don't have. But he took out his little pad and he started to write those words. In six weeks, that man stood up to preach his first sermon. <laughs> yeah, it makes me sick too. Anyway, he stands up. <laughs> 5,000 people gather there. And he reads this sermon on the prodigal son. Amen. The men in the front with their, their gourds and their long hair and their pig fat greased bodies are sitting there and they begin to click their gourds as they're thinking this through, muttering to one another and to themselves. And the women in the back are, t- are chattering away as well. And then all of a sudden the, the men make a decision. And they look up and they say, preach it again. You ever do that to your pastor? You know that. It was so good. <laughs> one more time. Two, three, four, five times. I really am out of time. Folks, after five times, those people went out and 5,000 of those people became evangelists before they knew Jesus. They went out around the campfires and they told the story of the prodigal son. And over the months to come, and I don't want to exaggerate the story at all, but I believe it was somewhere around six to eight to nine months or so in there that, that the messages got out around the campfires. The leaders were coming back to the white man and they said, we want to burn our weapons, we want to burn our fetishes, we want to follow the leaves from heaven. And he said, he put his arms, I never heard, you know, they didn't have Fuller Seminary with all of their you know, studies of people movements then. And so he said, he put his arms out and he said, now wait a second, you burn your weapons and your enemies may come from the neighboring valley and kill and eat you. 
And he said, that's something to think about, white man. So they went off and they gathered around their campfires and they talked about it again and they came back and they said, no, we, he kept putting them off. They'd come back week after week until finally they came to him. And you know what they said? They said, look, you're the fulfillment of the dream. You brought the leaves from heaven with a message from the creator God. And if that living Christ that you talk about, the God of the unseen realm, is really who he says he is, then he can protect us from our enemies. The white guy said, you're ready. <laughs> And so they burned their weapons, burned their fetishes. Not everybody came to Christ that first wave, only 20,000. Hmm. Not a bad prayer letter. Well, wouldn't you know, the enemy begins to work as well. A young man went into a neighboring valley, or next to a neighboring valley. They came out, grabbed them, took them back, killed them, and ate them. The food, that, by the way, has nothing to do with, you know, eat. They don't gorge the body. They just take a little bit. They're trying to get the mana, the soul strength of the warrior. But it really messes things up. The equilibrium in the unseen realm had been impacted deeply. And so the spirit specialists, who were still part of those who had not come to Christ, came and demanded that the older brother lead them into war. That was the only thing that saved them from immediate bloodshed, is that the older brother must lead the war party, but he had come to Jesus. He said, I must pray, and he did. Over the course of 30 days, they came back repeating. He would not. He, just, he was a man of God, even at a very young age spiritually. And then after 30 days, he stood up after a church service. They said, you could have heard a pin drop. Even the pig shut up. And this guy says, I have come to a decision. We will not bring war against our enemies. In fact, we are going to take the leaves from heaven, and that white guy and I are going to go tell him about Jesus. And the white guy said, me? <laughs> <laughs> and so that fellow that I'm talking about, the white guy and this man, 20-something years later, were telling me this story. And at that point, they began to cry. See, the white guy kissed his wife goodbye, and then he kissed my wife goodbye, who was about two years old at the time. And my father-in-law and this man made their way down the trail, not knowing if they would die. Because you see, all that matters when you see the God of the unseen realm is surrendering everything. They went into that neighboring valley. They could have died. They surrounded them. They had a, you know, the, 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 the Donnie fellow, his father-in-law said, was just shaking like a leaf. He thought they were going to put a stone knife in his liver any moment. But they sat down and they put a fire there and put the sweet potato in the fire, which is a sign of peace. And they said, please tell us about the leaves from heaven. We've heard about that. I would have. I would have started in Genesis 1-1 and read very slowly, you know. <laughs> but they didn't. Instead, they simply shared Jesus. And the guy said, that tastes good to our liver, we like that message. Would you please be the one to the younger man who had lost his older brother to that particular valley? And he crossed the trails and brought the gospel. And over the course of the next year or two, the entire valley came to Christ. You see, that's what God is about. Do you want to give your life to something? In our weakness, his strength is perfected. Forgive me for going over time. Let's pray. Living God, have your way in our midst, we pray. Oh, Father, I pray that if there are some here this morning who are wondering, is it worth being involved with that which you are about? Father, come and touch their hearts and enable them to see that it's not in our strength. In fact, it's in our weakness that your strength is perfected. If there are some who are insecure as I was, give them the security that is found in the Lord Jesus Christ alone. 
And I pray that you would have your way, O God, in our midst and in their hearts. And I pray that if there are some here this morning who are wondering how they can be involved, I ask that you would raise up intercessors who are in this church who will not allow anything to stop them from praying down your will on earth, even as it is in heaven. I pray that from the the walls of this fellowship, such prayer would be put forth for the nations of the earth that the course of human history would be changed. I ask, O God, that if there are others who have the wherewithal to give in order that this gospel might be spread around the world, that you enable them to do so. But I pray that most of all, in all that we do, by life or by death, in good times and in bad, no matter what the cost may be, I ask that we would surrender everything. Because, Lord, we say unashamedly, now in 2009, before you're thrown together, that we absolutely love you. We thank you for your infinite grace, and we pray that you would be glorified even now. In your name we pray. Amen.